know, they say before you're about to die, your life flashes before your eyes, but that wasn't really my experience. What I saw was more like letting go of things that hadn't happened yet. And I had this vision of my 10-year-old daughter being all grown up. And there were a lot of things that sort of happened before. This is like in an instance, but it seems like it's taking forever. And I just saw my daughter grown up and uh, dressed in white, walking down the aisle without her dad. And I just remember, like, I shot up, and I was like, I'm alive, I have to do something about it. So I reached my hand into the wound in my thigh, like, I thought I was going to pinch the artery off, like MacGyver, I'm like, no, I'm good, I'm going to walk it off, it's fine. And it's really not how it went down, I just pressed and prayed that it would give enough time for the medic to arrive. Dan Nebin's story is one of incredible perseverance and redemption. A highly decorated soldier, Dan's life was forever changed when his Humvee struck an IED during a combat mission in Iraq. After his accident, Dan was forced to look inward to find a path to healing. Through a ton of self-work, support from veterans organizations, and a personal redefining of his life's purpose, Dan went from depressed and severely wounded in a hospital bed to becoming the Dan Evans we know today a professional speaker and yoga teacher who's been inspiring audiences around the globe for more than a decade. I got a chance to sit down with Dan at Wanderlust Wellspring in Palm Springs and record this interview, our very first episode taped in front of a live studio audience. And boy, there wasn't a dry eye in the house. I'm Jeff Krasnow, and welcome to Commune. Dan is an American hero. You're an Iraqi war vet, a professional speaker, meditation and yoga teacher, spokesperson for the Wounded Warrior Project. And uh, first, I just want to thank you for your service. Oh, thanks, Jeff. I wouldn't trade a single day. I want to ask you about that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about your story. I, I know mm-hmm. you grew up in Baltimore. I did. And it's funny, I enlisted because I didn't have a great home life. And you know where I'm from, I'm, most people that I grew up with are products of broken homes. But for me, it was my mom that left when I was a teenager, uh, 13 years old. And my, my dad did the best he could to raise my brother and I, but it wasn't so great. And what I saw in the military during the first Gulf War as it was unfolding and I was about to be a senior in high school, what I, what I saw when I was watching these farewell ceremonies of the military being deployed... It wasn't the family stuff that like, pulled at my heartstrings because I was a jaded kid. And uh, something that got me was when I watched the people in uniform leave their families and then come together and embrace each other. And there were more of the awkward smiles and tears. And I saw that. I was like, well, that's a family that I can be part of. And uh, so I enlisted um, to fight in that war. But if you remember your history, started in February, was over in March in my senior year of high school. But I still stayed in and did eight years active duty. Loved it, and uh, Germany for four years, Fort Bragg, North Carolina for four years. So, you know, after eight years of active duty, I got out and simultaneously re-enlisted into the National Guard and went back to school. First person in my family to graduate from college and was a stockbroker for a while in pharmaceutical sales. And, and we all remember 9-11 and, you know, watching that unfold. I never imagined that I'd be deployed to fight the war that was, everyone was saying was going to happen. Uh, because I was in the one weekend a month, like the National Guard. And three years later, I was deployed. 
and they took our National Guard unit, who I, I would say probably wasn't the most qualified or fit to fight group in the planet at the time, and became the tip of the spear fighting the war in Operation Iraqi Freedom too. And we learned a, a lot of hard lessons. Uh, we lost really good people. And you know, that's something that I, I, I go back to all the time is, you know, we talk about goals all the time, and you know, there's, a, there's really not a lot of consequence for not meeting your goals if they're personal goals, other than like, shame, defeat, like that, those, those feelings that we all carry around. But in these situations, the consequence of not meeting your goal is that your best friends die. And uh, we learned some really tough lessons. And then I got to see these, these people, these, these human beings who weren't necessarily the most fit to fight group in the world become the most elite, efficient group of people that I've ever had the privilege of serving with. And then for me, everything changed. Um, it was during the Battle of Fallujah that started on November 7th. Three days later, we got some intelligence that some of the insurgency was leaving Fallujah to come to where we were in a place called Balad, Iraq. And we were headed out for a 72-hour dismounted counterinsurgent operation that we had kind of planned and studied. And I was going to be the non-commissioned officer in charge of this action, this, this mission. And uh, my boss, this guy named Sergeant First Class Mike Adelini, who you guys don't know, but hardest working human being I've ever met. And he was fighting with a protruding hernia in his abdomen for months and we finally caught on to it and, and he had to have surgery so he wasn't being on this, this mission, but he had actually opted to drive that mission, which he wasn't probably supposed to do, but that's just the type of person he was. And I remember we're leaving for this operation and we left the main gates of LSA and Aconda at exactly 0400 hours, right on time, military precision took a right on a well-traveled paved road and an almost immediate left on a not-so-well-traveled dirt road and it's pitch black outside, low-hanging cloud cover, so you couldn't see the moon or stars and it's eerily just silent. And the only thing I really remember in those moments lead leading up was my head was bowed in prayer like it was before every mission and uh, the only thing I remember hearing was the familiar 6.2 liter Cummings diesel engine in my Humvee as we moved carefully down this pitiful road and Silence, and then boom. The uh, silence was destroyed by the deafening blast that sent my 18,000-pound vehicle about six feet in the air in a ball of fire. I remember being in the prayer when the explosion happened. I could feel and hear the truck basically disintegrate around my body, and I really didn't know what, what was happening. I was disoriented, and I might have been knocked out for a couple seconds. When I opened my eyes, I realized that I was ejected from the vehicle and my legs remained caught in the twisted and burning metal that used to be the floorboard and undercarriage of the truck. And as the um, chaos started to unfold and I, I started to realize what was happening, I still couldn't see well, but there was some lingering fire from the blast. So I could start to see as the dust cloud descended, I made out that, that Mike, who was driving, had made the ultimate sacrifice. And uh, seeing the condition that he was in was very bad. I mean, immediately obvious that he was gone. I knew that I was hurt pretty bad and I started to check myself out. My helmet came apart in two pieces in my hand and it wasn't a great start, but I was conscious and that's a good thing and moved on in my arms, my torso. When I reached up for my legs, that's when I felt the unmistakable arterial blood spurt with every beat in my heart. And so I realized that my femoral artery was severed. My leg was still attached, but uh, I was bleeding out and just sort of gave up for a while. And then ultimately, as I was like letting go, I had these sort of, you know, they say before you're about to die, your life flashes before your eyes, but that wasn't really my experience. What I saw was more like letting go of things that hadn't happened yet. 
And I had this vision of my 10-year-old daughter being all grown up. And there were a lot of things that sort of happened before. This is like in an instance, but it seems like it's taking forever. And I just saw my daughter grown up and uh, dressed in white, walking down the aisle without her dad. And I just remember, like, I shot up, and I was like, I'm alive. I have to do something about it. So I reached my hand into the wound in my thigh, like, I thought I was going to pinch the, uh, pinch the artery off, like MacGyver. I'm like, no, I'm good. I'm going to walk it off. It's fine. And it's really not how it went down. I just pressed and prayed that it would give enough time for the medic to arrive. And it's like I blinked my eyes, and there was Dan Smee, my medic, and I had a tourniquet on my leg. I blinked again. There was an IV in my arm. And I blinked again, and my whole team, like my new family, was there putting themselves in harm's way to remove my legs from that vehicle that was still on fire. And how long did that take before the medics arrived? Probably at that point, maybe four or five minutes. So if I hadn't been, if I was knocked out, I wouldn't be here. I'd be gone. I would have bled out for sure. Right. So you had the consciousness to essentially stem your own blood flow. Right. I just, uh, it, yeah, and it wasn't To give graceful. you enough time. Yeah, absolutely. And mm-hmm. I was just, and I got, I was very fortunate because Mike was killed. Everyone else in the truck was either knocked out, like my gunner Poindexter was knocked out, like onto the roof somewhere. The 50 cal was ripped off the top of the truck and thrown in a canal. And my boss, Lieutenant Doxy, was on the, my right side and he was knocked out. There was all, everyone was like either killed or knocked out, but somehow I stayed conscious. And I'm so grateful for that because without that consciousness, I'd probably be gone too. Yeah. You, you tell that with grace. Thank you. So now take us a little bit through what's going on in your mind during that period of recovery and, and what, that, what that recovery was like. Yeah, it was um, right, right when the, you know, my team came, they, they got my legs out of the truck. I, I was on a helicopter within a couple minutes from there. And then I had a less than a minute helicopter ride back to the main gates of LSA in Aconda where we just left. And that's where the combat surgical hospital was. It was a really nice tent complex where they did, you know, surgery and they did it all there. And I remember going in off the helicopter, they put happy juice in my IV. I was out and I woke up um, in the recovery sort of section of the tent and there was a combat nurse's face right in mine. And, you know, she, she was trying to keep me from looking down was what, like, tactically what she was doing. And I'll never, I'll never know her name, but I'll never forget um, her face or, or what she said. She's like, Sergeant Nevins, you're a very lucky man. We managed to repair your femoral artery. We had to take your left leg below the knee. We managed to save your right one for now, but you'll probably lose that one too, which she was ultimately right. And in those moments like that, the pity party started to set in. It's like, wow, like, okay, I lost a leg. What can a guy with no legs do? And in my mind, it was nothing. You know, I hadn't ever considered it. I hadn't prepared for it. And the only thing I could think of in those moments, like, well, I was an athlete. I was a competitive runner. Running is what brought my wife and I together. That's how we met. That's what we did together. How would she love me anymore? And then my, my daughter, again, like, maybe I'll get to see her walk down the aisle, but I'm not going to be able to throw her on my shoulders and run around the beach and play hard like dads do with their kids. And she, you know, looked up to me and, like, how would she still look up to me or respect me in that way? And I knew for sure I wasn't going to be able to lead my team. And then my thoughts went to, well, I got to abandon my guy. Like, I was the leader. And so now I, I abandoned my team. And so leave them to go fight. And when all this... We're talking like less than a minute, and all these emotions are coming and flooding. And then I just took a breath, 
And I looked against the wall of the tent, and there was my whole team just waiting for me to wake up. And uh, they, came, they, they came over, and um, I had, like, shrugged off the pity party. And uh, we, I remember we just told horribly inappropriate jokes. It's just what we did. I mean, this wasn't that I can share this one. I actually said, I guess I have to return the roller skates I got for Christmas, which I didn't. <laughs> it was just there was some really good pain medicine, you know? And, uh, and then we just talked, and we told stories, and we laughed. And uh, we talked about Mike and uh, shed some tears, and I fell asleep. And I woke up the next morning at Langstroh Regional Medical Center in Germany, where I'd spend the next seven days with surgery every day. And um, it was busy time. Like, I wasn't in the Battle of Fallujah, which if they write about the war in Iraq, if they write about any battles, it will be the 2004 Battle of Fallujah. And... I wasn't in Fallujah, but the Battle of Fallujah was in the hospital. Every ward was full. The hallways were full with combat wounded, most of them Marines, most of them 18, 19 years old, and most of them a lot worse off than I was. And so I had that like perspective of seeing this, like seeing what was going on with me, but no time to connect or talk to anyone because they were busy saving lives. And the only thing I could think of in those moments was what that nurse says. I lost one leg and then what and probably the other. And I just got kind of spun down for those seven days of self-pity, self-loathing, of shame, of like, what, what is life going to be like now? And um, yeah, it was hard because I was completely alone. And it just any time that I was awake, I'd usually wake up finding myself sitting in a pool of my own blood waiting for a dressing change. And that sounds like a criticism on the, on the hospital staff, and it really wasn't. They were busy like it was really I had what looked like piano wire holding my legs together and of course it's going to ooze and things and it's just the nature of what was happening but it wasn't there was nothing pleasant about it and I was in pain or then I if I was lucky enough to get someone to come by and give me a pain medicine before the pain got bad there's no we didn't have any words for each other and so everything was left to my own thoughts and my own the kind of conjuring of what life was going to be like and none of it was positive it was just, well, my wife's going to leave me. My, my daughter's not going to be able to, to, to like adapt to a dad that's, that's different or changed. And then I was deployed from the National Guard, so I had a career to go back to. I was a pharmaceutical sales rep at the time, so I was in and out of my car and up and down hospital steps. And I'm like, would I be able to do that anymore? And so how was I going to provide for my family? And because uh, you know, I had taken a pretty drastic pay cut to go back into the military to be deployed, so... I was just like, wow, I'm now because of this, I'm setting my family up for a crisis. And so the, every thought was um, sort of down that rabbit hole of it's not going to get any better. When did you find the tools and the practices to get out of that headspace? And how did that happen? Well, I was very fortunate that um, the organization Wounded Warrior Project met me at my hospital bedside with a, with a backpack that we'd all take for granted what's inside, shorts and a T-shirt, calling cards, I'm dating myself, calling cards to call home long distance, uh, playing cards, notes from Grateful Americans, 
um, a toothbrush and tooth. I hadn't seen my wife in over almost over a year, and I hadn't brushed my teeth or washed my face in seven days to that point. So I get, it was really helpful to have that. And there were socks in there that I really didn't need, but it was a nice <laughs> gesture. But it was really like everything. Like I can put shorts and t-shirt on to feel more like a human being again versus this paper-thin hospital gown, like you know, all exposed. And it was probably the most significant gift that I've ever received. And that that gave me a little breath of reprieve that like maybe, just maybe, I was going to be okay. And I could sing their praises all day long. They were at my hospital bedside helping me prove that my disability didn't define me, that I got to define what the rest of my life was going to be like. They were the ones that kind of knocked me off my pity party and said, look, you can still do all these things, maybe a little different. I mean, you might have to adapt or, but like, you can make it happen. And they had other people, other warriors, just like me with similar injuries doing things. And so I had people to look up to and things to aspire to. So that kind of got me on the right track. And um, like I'm a yoga teacher now, but yoga was not even in my vocabulary at that point. And what I, what I realized now, looking back, is that I was practicing yoga in a lot of different ways back then. I did a lot of self-inquiry, like I would write in journals and books, like, okay, if this isn't what my life is going to be like, what, what will it be like? How can I create my life newly, considering that physically I've changed? And so that's when I first got introduced. And so, like, I have to give credit to Wounded Warrior Project for putting me in a headspace, like that act of kindness, that gift, just got me to just pause for a moment to take one clearing breath and say, like, okay, if I continue to think like this, then that's, that's what I'm going to create for my life. So I don't want that. Like, I knew that. I didn't want to be like that. So I just said, how can I do it differently? And um, it took that and many years of that and then learning to adapt physically and then proving that I could still do the things. And so most of that, though, was geared toward my physical um, limitations. And then I learned coping skills to deal with like the invisible wounds, the wounds that like back then I wouldn't talk about or I didn't want to because I just wanted to, I don't, I don't want to say push it under the rug, but I just didn't want to go back and relive it. So I just learned that I could cope with it by doing physical things. Like I got to be a single digit handicap in golf and I climbed Kilimanjaro and I you know, did all these things as conquests to sort of kind of shove that down and it worked. And was there a time where okay, you got f fitted with prosthetics and you're like, whoa, wait a minute. Like, I can do this. Yeah, absolutely. It was, well, it was my saving my right leg was the thing that held me back. But it was like, they gave me the option to save it. I had to try. And so like I had, when I looked at my legs, I had my left leg was a prosthetic. My right leg started out with pins and rods holding it together and all these 30 some different surgeries to try to make it work. And it was viable, but it was intensely painful. It was on enough pain medicine to kill an elephant. It just wasn't ideal. Um, but when I looked at my legs, I said, well, my left one, my prosthetic is the good leg. And now my right one is real and it's mine and I can kind of feel the ground, but it's, it's my bad leg. And then so another infection later and three years had gone by and I took my right one off. And then, then the whole world opened up. Because then I could perform at higher levels and I could run again. And I could, like, I, like, even right now, I forget that I don't have my feet and my prosthetics. Um, as long as I remember when I'm getting out of bed, because that could be tragic. <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, it's like I, I had those, the, the, these moments of, I got this. I'm good. 
but it was the invisible wounds. That, that's what I had to do something about. Ride a bike, climb a mountain, play golf, get outside. And that was my yoga before, before yoga. So you got back on your feet and you climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. You started doing these things. What was that inflection point to you discovering meditation, discovering yoga, and then becoming a teacher? It was uh, something one I never expected. I had my last surgery, some knock on wood, last surgery uh, five years ago, and it was just to fix some skin stuff on the what was left of my right leg. And so as a result of that surgery, I couldn't wear my leg for eight weeks, and I had to be home alone because it wasn't like my first surgery as I was at Walter Reed Army Medical Center surrounded by warriors and families and all these people and support groups and systems. This, I had a job, and I was an executive for a nonprofit, and I was working for Wounded Warrior Project at the time. I had this big job and scope, but I had to take the Family Medical Leave Act to go get surgery, and I came back home alone to heal. And I couldn't email my team. I couldn't lead my team. I couldn't ride a bike. I couldn't climb a mountain. All these things I couldn't do. And then the invisible wounds started to like actually have effect on me. And so like right now, I'm not diagnosed with PTSD. But if, you know, if I would have went to a doctor, I would have gotten the diagnosis. But that was just avoiding it because I didn't suffer. I didn't suffer because when it started to get, like lead towards suffering, I had something to do. I could climb a mountain, I could ride a bike, I could play golf, I could get outside, I could do those things. But now, not being able to wear one leg, I couldn't even be a parent. I had uh, my 10-year-old that when I got hurt was now 18 and in the army. And my 3-year-old at the time, who's now 8, I couldn't take care of her. So she had to stay with her mom because we were divorced, so I couldn't chase around the 3-year-old up and down steps with two crutches and a prosthetic leg hopping around. So I was alone. And then I couldn't sleep. The thoughts and like recurrences of um, a lot of horrific things from combat, everything you'd probably imagine, or like invading my sleep and I couldn't sleep. And then I'd wake up and then I'd, well, I need to go back to sleep. So I'd take a handful of Benadryl. Like I, you didn't have sleeping pills around, but I took Benadryl and took a couple shots of booze and not wanting to wake up in the morning. And it's not like I was suicidal, but I didn't want to be there anymore. I didn't want to wake up. And I, I called a friend and I was telling her what was going on. And she happened to be a yoga teacher, which I didn't hold against her because she knew not to talk about yoga to me because uh, it just wasn't for me because I, I was a man. And uh, so, you know, she had said, Dan, you need some yoga. I told her everything. She's like, Dan, you need some yoga in your life. And I was a no. And she kind of, she read that just perfectly. So she said, what about meditation? And then I said, well, like, that's okay. That's more palatable. And like, Gandhi seems cool. Like, I read <laughs> books about it, but I just couldn't do it. And she, she taught me how meditation was about being present, not being, like, vacant. And then I really started to get it, and I created a meditation practice over those remaining weeks, and things started to improve. I could sleep a little better. I wasn't chasing pills and booze. And, you know, I just kind of pulled myself up by my bootstraps, as we say, and just started moving forward. And then I made this mistake of calling her to say thank you. And, uh, and I did now that. Now she was ready to talk about yoga, <laughs> right? right? <laughs> exactly. And she was like, oh, so this weird Eastern hippie stuff actually worked for you. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know I feel like I'm wrong. I'll admit I'm wrong. And I admit it all day long. And she said, well, I think you owe me some yoga. And I couldn't get out of it. So I agreed to three private lessons and uh, because I didn't want to be with <laughs> weird yogis, right? Like, like people, like I was like, I'll do one-on-one. -on -one. And I remember 
I went into, because uh, I'm an all or nothing guy, I went into Lululemon. And I was like, I refinanced my house and bought a pair of shorts and a shirt. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, like I bought a yoga mat and I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. And it was miserable though. Like I went in, I had just got my prosthetic leg back and I was being able to walk on it. I was like bleeding inside of it some still. I didn't tell, talk about that, but it was painful. And I, you know, I'm trying to get in these poses and, and it's painful. And it's, I'm like, why is it so hot in here? And just like the whole situation was just not good, like from my ego, from shame, from not being good at it. And she's saying stupid things like, root down to rise up. I'm like, what does that even mean? And then she, press your feet into the ground. I'm like, say feet one more time. Say it one more time and watch what happens. Like, I'm just like going through this whole experience miserable. And when it was over, I was like, thank God it's over. And then the, I remember she called me later that night to schedule the second class. And right before I told her exactly where to put that second lesson, I remembered that I committed to three. And a commitment is a commitment, period. And so I showed up to the second class and it was the same thing and it was the same pain and it was the same humiliation and embarrassment and not being able to get it and still some pain in my legs. And I got so frustrated, I said, can I just try this with my legs off? And um, she looked at me, her, I remember her eyes got so wide. Her eyes were saying, no, because uh, what am I gonna tell you to do with your feet? Or like, how am I gonna get you into these poses? But her mouth said yes. And I remember I threw my legs off. And I'm sure, and she's behind me, and I'm sure she's thinking, what am I gonna, how am I gonna tell this guy what to do next? She's probably just digesting it. And I've, I just decided I was gonna do warrior one. I'm just gonna try it, because, well, duh, I'm a warrior, so I'm gonna do like a warrior pose. And I remember at that moment saying, okay, look, I'm doing this, so I'm gonna really do it. So what was the stupid thing she was saying? She said, root down to rise up. What does it mean? Okay, let me visualize, just like you were saying. Let me visualize roots growing from like what was left of my legs. And uh, I just did that. And so I can rise up. Okay, so I'm going to reach my arms up over my head. Like, Virabhadrasana 1, I'm going to reach up. And when I did that, the earth, like, I, I can say this, like, I still shoot guns and I eat meat. I'm very careful where my meat comes from and I'm trying. But like, I just, I'm just a dude. I'm just a dude. And at that, at that point, I was just a dude dude. Like, and um, like I didn't have any of the language or anything, right? And I'm just, and I, and I just remember this real, not metaphorical, this real jolt, like surge of energy just came up from the earth, like into my body, my Hands flew up over my head. I felt like eight feet tall. And uh, I was just like, holy shit, having this breakthrough moment of my whole life on a yoga mat. I'm like, holy shit, this is crazy. It's like the earth was saying, Dan, where have you been for the last 10 years? And I, and like, um, something changed. And I got just excited. I'm like, okay, this is, something is in this practice. Um, and then I just committed to it. And by the end of my third lesson, I was enrolled in teacher training. <laughs> and uh, you. And, uh, I, and and now looking back though like at that that moment it was it was about connection so it, i used to say that my marriage was a casualty of the war and really my marriage was a casualty of connection because i was so busy not dealing with all the demons that i had to deal with and get them out and like re-examine them pull them back out and, and into the open and then let go that that i was disconnected from the from the earth 
right? It's the most fundamental basic connection from my body down to the planet. And then since if we're all connected to the earth and like I'm disconnected from everyone else, especially my wife and my kids. And I did a decent job, but I wasn't really connected anywhere. And I started to notice that more. And then I started to work on putting connection back into my life where it was missing. And then everything just got better. It's like I had to look inside, like go deep inside to notice how everything outside was broken and then how what my responsibility and what my role was to try to fix it or improve it. Can you talk maybe a little bit about kind of what you're doing with yoga, meditation, and, and vets? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I started my own little nonprofit called Warrior Spirit Retreat where we use yoga, mindfulness, and meditation really in a way to to clear up some points and some of the misconceptions of things. Because I was teaching to a lot of Wounded Warrior Project events and I would get people like, wow, thanks for teaching because it kind of had to be here, but I'm never going to go to yoga again. So I kind of learned how to translate yoga philosophy and you know, the, the eight limbs into things that they're going to do again, like play golf or just be outside in nature or horsemanship, things that were like, these are things they'll do again and not and not have to deal with whatever else is in their way. And what's really important, though, too, is for me, I don't know if it's selfish or selfless, is I look at this generation of warriors and, and the previous generations of warriors who didn't have the tools and, and really no one there to guide them. And I, I look at the data now. So the Wounded Warrior Project annual survey is like the largest, most comprehensive set of data for this generation of warrior and some of their family information too. And what you get from this data set and reading the results from 2017, 18's coming soon, but you see that 79% are living with PTSD. Over 50% are either obese or morbidly obese. 75% feel that if something happened to them that no one would come to their aid. That over 70% are living with depression. I think it's 76% just, just don't, like their physical limitation keeps them from doing, no, it's actually 82%. Their physical limitations keep them from earning the wages that they would think they could earn. 85% uh, feel that because of their emotional wounds, they're not performing at the level that they could. And I look at this group of people that I care about and like what they're missing are tools. And so like I'm just committed to sharing tools with them any way that I can, whether it's through my own nonprofit, through my work with Wounded Warrior Project, or even coming to events like Wellsprings, where I'm probably not going to teach tomorrow and Sunday to a group of veterans. They're, they're probably not showing up. And they might, and I hope so. I invited them. But my message for like when I teach, I teach, get to teach all over, the, all over the globe, is to say, invite a veteran to yoga because you just might save their life. Because that's really what I feel happened for me. Like one yoga teacher took a chance and I said no a hundred times before I said yes. And then that commitment, my yes, like being a yes for myself in that moment when I didn't have anywhere else to turn, changed my whole life. And if I could help introduce people in this community that I care about, and then they can turn around and become leaders in this space as well, or even more present in their own families and start to heal the relationships like I healed mine. Like that's the first step into so much more creation of positivity and um, influence in the world that, that these people have the, some of the best training in the planet. Like people come from the military from all over the world and they come with their own 
um, learned ideas about you know cultures, races, religions, like everything. But the military does a remarkable job at stripping most of that away because when the bullets start flying, you don't see color anymore, you don't see gender anymore. You you just see like you're you're with me. I'm gonna try to save your life. You try to save mine, and it it's so great. And we need more of that in the world where people who who don't who don't see skin color, they don't see uh, religious differences as, as like as immediate as a lot of people do. And these people have so much to contribute and they're like leaving it on dusty on the shelf. And I, that's not okay. So I just wanna be a part of uh, reinvigorating the warrior mentality and the warrior spirit inside of these warriors so then they can move on to the next mission because they are so service oriented, like now that they feel that they can't be that, whether they retired or whether they were just got out of the army or whether a illness or injury took them out, is they feel like a lot of times the best of their life, the best person they've ever been is over and there's nothing left for me. And I, and I keep saying like, no, the best thing you've ever done hasn't happened yet. And if you don't get off the couch and get out of the bed and get out of your house and start moving your body and taking better care of yourself, it, you're going to be right. Like whether you think you can or you can't, you're right. And if you think the best person you've ever been is done, then you're right. But I actually disagree with you. After this whole journey, you're back on top, right? After that whole journey. Looking back on your life, was there anything that you'd change about it? My knee jerk is like, I wouldn't change a thing. And I, I say that because when I look back at, at what happened and everything I had to go through, I learned the important things in life. I learned about being the best possible human being I can be. I learned about um, the things that are important. I learned about connection and, and, and bringing it into my conscious brain of like, I'm missing it here. Where am I missing the mark elsewhere? And, and being able to look and then create my life as I want to. And had this not happened to me, I'm not so sure that would be my life right now. And I'm not willing to trade or give it another shot. Now I've made dumb moves along the way, things that I, you know, like uh, decisions, maybe I wouldn't have done it that way. So, you know, those, but I think those are uh, negligible compared to um, the risk that if I changed anything, I wouldn't wind up in this spot. I wouldn't change. Thank you for sharing your story and God bless you for the work that you're doing. Thank you. After this interview, many of the folks in the audience came up to me and said the exact same thing. I'll never complain about anything ever in my life again. Dan's story is heroic and inspirational in every way. And maybe our situations are not as grave as Dan's, but we all experience pain and loss. We all confront obstacles. And if anything, we can use Dan's story to give us the strength and the courage to confront the greatest challenges in our lives. Sometimes they can be our greatest teacher. I'm Jeff Krasnow, and thanks for listening to The Commune Podcast. Subscribe now for weekly episodes, and I'll see you next week. Yeah.